Talks of David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Those who want to apologize for the awfulness of King Menashe's reign, sorry you missed the intro, (laughs) will tell you that really he didn't have a lot of choice because when we look at the wider picture, we have to understand how the society of Judah at the time is embedded in a wider political and cultural reality. And that looks something like this. Here's the land of Israel. And here is Assyria. And as we know by now, I mean, even 20 years before here, when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they were entering the height of their expansive phase. Certainly by now, by here, by 700, you know, under rulers, not just like uh, Shalmaneser V and Sargon II, and also Sancherev, as the Bible calls him, or Sennacherib, who was the ruler here, the Assyrian consolidation of the Assyrian Empire is just massive. And even though Hezekiah had managed to somehow get Jerusalem and the small pocket of land around Jerusalem that was kind of like a reduced state of Judean independence through that expansion, it didn't mean that Judah was unaffected. So by the time you get to Manasseh, we are allowed our independence, but we are effectively a vassal state. We are effectively a vassal state, and here's Judah, and Manasseh is having to pay tribute constantly to the powers in Assyria. When Sancherev, who had been the Assyrian king that had tried to wipe out Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, when he died in the 680s, and he didn't die nicely. He was killed by his sons. Uh, and one of the sons that wasn't actually there at his assassination was the one that went on to become king. And in fact, uh, pursued his brothers, killed them and became king. And uh, his name... I mean, look, I know that it's not a memory test for us, right? We don't have to say, oh, he's just going to say a whole lot of names. But I say these names, and if I only have a certain amount of time to talk about this period, then the names I say are important, and you can look into them at your leisure. But bear in mind that there are universities with entire departments devoted to Assyriology. It is not simply a few paragraphs here and there. This is an entire discourse which was at its height in the 19th and early 20th centuries as archaeologists were discovering the most amazing things about the ancient world and the entire departments and professorships of Assyriology were created. So these figures are big and we know a lot about them. And I'll talk more in a moment about why we know a lot about them. But the, uh, I'll do it in red. So the first successor to Sancherib was at the height of the Assyrian uh, expansive empire was... Uh, Esarhaddon, 
pronounced, you know, he's got different pronunciations in Latin and in Greek and in Akkadian and whatever, but we know him basically as Esarhadon, huge king, and a king that really had no time for anyone who wasn't going to be completely in line with the Assyrian state ideology. And I'll say this before and I'll say it again, because we've got to realize Ashur means Assyria. Ashur was a place. Ashur was the empire. Ashur was the state religion. Ashur was the god. The Neo-Assyrians had been around for about 50, the Assyrians themselves had been around for 1500 years, but in this particular phase of ascendancy, they took their own religion and ideology and universalized it and made it the dominant religion and ideology of everywhere they went. And you had to pay obeisance to Ashur. In order to keep Judean independence, Manasseh had to not only pay a lot of tribute, and of course, symbols of loyalty, but he also had to allow a certain amount of openness and religious tolerance inside Judea itself. So that is why, even after the great religious reforms of Hezekiah, who'd been a big champion for God of Israel, his son Manasseh had to allow temples to Baal and to Ashur and to some of the other Middle Eastern gods, like a type of multiculturalism. And that would have been seen as a very effective way of showing loyalty to the Assyrian powers. Uh, if you read rabbinic literature on Menasheh, they'll tell you a lot more about him because they really, really, really don't like him. What they'll also tell you, also to some extent backed up by historical sources, is that Menasheh wasn't just encouraging religious syncretism, which, as you can imagine, was pissing a few people off the sort of people that write letters to the AJN. <laughs> but he also was a political tyrant and was brooking no opposition and was famous, obviously, for having any opposition assassinated, and particularly opposition from the prophetic class. So whereas we have quite a few prophets that we know of here, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micha, that whole class of prophets there. And we have prophets here that we're going to talk about. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, all these prophets here. But there are no prophets from this entire period. We learn that Manasseh filled Jerusalem with the blood of his opponents. In fact, there is only one prophet, really, that survives from this whole period. And that, interestingly, is a prophet that's in the Tanakh, it's in the Bible, but not many people know about this prophet because there are no haftorahs from this prophet and we're not really often exposed to him. It's not a long book. But he's regarded as the one prophet that survived this period. Anyone know who that prophet is? It is the prophet Nahum. And the prophet Nahum is three small chapters and they're talking about one thing. The destruction of Assyria. And in fact it's quite amazing because when Assyria is destroyed it's pretty much exactly how he said it's going to be. 
but at this time we're talking about the absolute height. Now, at one point we understand from some historical sources, there's a mention of this not in the main narrative in Kings but in the book of Chronicles but also in other places it's possible to understand that at some point Manasseh's loyalty was questioned by the Assyrian kings and he was summoned to Assyria where he had to undergo some form of uh, torture and after which he kind of relented on some of the harsher aspects of his kingdom but for most of this period it was Menasheh and he drove the nation towards more and more reliance on and alliance with Assyria culturally that's the really important part culturally as well as politically religion oh you know what you want to worship the god of israel you want to have your temple okay but there's a lot of other things going on now sometime in the minus six sixties and i'm sorry that i have to go into a little bit of assyrian history but i'm telling you i'm giving us the tip of the iceberg just so that we can understand the bible we can understand jewish history but Eshar Hadon dies and he is succeeded by his son and his son becomes the most famous of all the Assyrian kings. If I had said to you before tonight's talk, name one Assyrian king, this is the one that you would say, maybe. Some of you may not have heard of him, so I don't want to make people feel bad, but if you're into Assyriology, he's the dude, right? And his name, very, very big king, his name is Ashurbanipal, or Ashurbanipal. Now, the reason he is super important is not merely because Ashurbanipal was the last of the great Assyrian kings. After him, it started, the whole empire started to disintegrate. He wasn't just the last, but he's the most famous because of one basic fact. How do we know all this? You see, Ashurbanipal was not meant to be king. His older brother was going to be king. He was a crown prince, but he was the prince. He was the brother of the guy who was going to become king. And what do you do with a prince who you know is probably not going to go onto the throne? You've got to give him something useful to do. So you teach him useful stuff, like reading. Ashurbanipal was unique among kings in the ancient world because he could read. And he liked reading. His brother died. And Ashurbanipal found himself on the throne and he still liked reading. And so using all of his resources, he created a phenomenal library, which is known as, by us, the Library of Ashurbanipal. And we knew about this library. And then, at the end of the 19th century, when archaeologists, French, German, British archaeologists, are crawling all over the Middle East looking for their fame and fortune, they discover the library of Ashurbanipal, 30,000 cuneiform tablets describing every aspect of Assyrian existence. That, over the next preceding decades, gets translated and therefore the foundation of what we call the science of or the discipline of Assyriology. So the library of Ashurbanipal is hugely important. We know a lot about Ashurbanipal. And Ashurbanipal is this massive king sitting here also during the reign of Menashe, but Ashurbanipal 
whose reign goes up until about 627, is really the last of the great, great Assyrian kings. And when I say the great Assyrian rulers, the Assyrian empire extended into Egypt, and not quite as far as the Indus, but it did have quite a few things going on east and Asia Minor and so on in this whole area, and of course Arabia. Massive, massive empire. Now, Manasseh dies sometime in the 630s. Sorry? No, natural death. In fact, it's very interesting because that forms part of what was troubling some of the prophets. How is it that this guy who was so awful was allowed to have one of the longest and most stable reigns of all Judean kings? Manasseh was followed by his son. His son's name was Ammon. Just to give you an idea of just how deeply the religious syncretism and polytheistic tolerance had permeated Jewish society, that his son actually has the name of an Egyptian god. Was Ammon a good king or a bad king? Which way was this going to go? Turns out Ammon was like his dad on crack. (laughs) And Ammon not only continued all of the abominable practices politically and religiously and ethically and morally of his father because during that time of stability of Menasheh we saw, as we saw earlier in the northern kingdom which really freaked out the prophets this tremendous social injustice that was creeping into society the gap between rich and poor the abuse of the law towards the underprivileged the lack of equality and the tremendous corruption that was going on he didn't stop any of that and in fact he went further in his anti-religious zeal and his attempt to suck up to the Assyrians and famously this is what the rabbi historians of the Talmud tell us and we don't have any alternative narrative and it kind of makes sense about what's going to happen next Ammon had every fragment of holy text that we had, effectively meaning the Torah, burnt. He attempted single-handedly to eradicate the entire textual tradition of the Jewish people. And he was on the throne for two years before he was assassinated. And in that two years, he did a lot of damage. And when Ammon died in around minus 641, his eight-year-old son came to the throne, who had only ever known his grandfather Menasheh and his father Ammon. So Menasheh is succeeded by Ammon. And Ammon is succeeded in around 640 by his eight-year-old son. When this eight-year-old son is round about Bar Mitzvah, he's too young to effectively rule. So obviously he's got regents and advisors who are kind of dealing with things until he comes into some form of maturity. And 
boys of royal families in that era were regarded as reaching maturity at the age of 12. From 12, they were seen as able to rule in their own right. They were, before the law, men. And round about his bar mitzvah, this young boy went whoa who am I I mean who actually am I I don't want to be a king like my father I don't want to be a king like my grandfather I'm told that I am actually on the throne of King David and that I have because of that, some special covenant with the God of Israel. And that I am on this throne to lead this nation in the path of justice and righteousness. I want to be a king like King David, my ancestor. I want to be a good king. He comes to the throne in around about 640. He has this realization probably 638, 637. And he is the extraordinary pivot around which everything that we're going to talk about for the rest of this talk really revolves. He's the, the most important figure in the Bible, certainly in terms of kings after Hezekiah, if not one of the most important in the whole of the first temple period, and his name is Josiah, Yoshiahu. And he goes about effecting what historians now refer to as the Josianic Revolution. We're sitting in a Chabad house in Melbourne in 2016, and we have a certain perception, I'm sure it kind of varies amongst all of us, but basically kind of a unified perception of what Judaism means and what Jewish history means and what the Jewish people are. And so much of that is due to the reforms and effects of the Josianic Revolution. I'm going to say something for a minute that's kind of a little bit of a spoiler. But I want to do it so we don't get confused. Josiah has a number of sons over the course of the next few years. He's going to father sons, according to some three, according to some four. All of them, including one grandson, are going to become king in the next few decades. I need you to understand that so we don't get confused, and I'll fill in these spaces as we get there. We, we talk about a messianic complex, and we even talk now, we even talk possibly in relation to this, a Josianic complex. It's a term. Because he really, really saw himself as the one. He was chosen by God to sit on the throne of Judah at that time in history to effect the great big apocalypse. Armageddon, 
the end. This is it. We're going to enter the big picture now. And of course, he doesn't have access to a Torah because they've all been burnt by his father and grandfather. But he has a few people around him who give him some indication of what he needs to do. And he knows he needs to run a society based on justice and based on righteousness. And he's also aware that the God of Israel has a big problem with idol worship. So the first thing he does without knowing anything else is he takes his army and he goes right through the whole land, police force, army, whatever, and they destroy every single remnant of idolatry that they can. At a level way beyond whatever Hezekiah did. Hezekiah got rid of the Bamot and he got rid of some of the idols, but Josiah was total. He got rid of those golden calves that had been in the northern kingdom. He had control over the northern kingdom, or what was the northern kingdom, over Samaria. They even dug up the bones of priests that had idol worship and burnt those bones. He desecrated any religious shrine that he saw to an idol. He was total. How could he do this? Why was he able to do this? Because in minus 627, Ashurbanipal dies. And already in the last few years of Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian Empire, as happens with all great empires, was disintegrating from within. And they could no longer keep a hold on all of their peripheral conquests. That allowed various states around the place to start feeling a sense of autonomy and independence from Assyrian control. The Assyrians were still nominally in charge, but they did not have the resources to hold their empire together, especially because so much of Assyrian resources was being sucked up in controlling the rising power of new quasi-empires such as Babylon and Medea. Therefore, Egypt was able to flick the forks at the Assyrian Empire, and we start seeing in the dynasty of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, we start to see the rise of some very, very big Egyptian rulers, the most famous of whom is probably one of the most famous Egyptian rulers of that entire period, and that, of course, is, and I'll put him down here in Egypt, and that, of course, is Nehor II. So Josiah is able to run around making these reforms. And then, sometime in the 620s, probably around about 620s, not long after Ashurbanipal dies. And by the way, you know, the library of Ashurbanipal, they found that underneath the gates of Ishtar. The gates of Ishtar you can go and you can look at in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. They excavated underneath there in the 1930s. They found the library, they found the Chronicles of Babylonia, and all of these issues that we're talking about are covered there. But in around 627, Josiah decides that he needs to have the temple cleaned up. This was the first major maintenance project and restoration project on the temple that had taken place since when? Since Yehoash, who I spoke about last week, remember that kid that had been saved 
after the bloodbath of Atalia and he grew up in the temple and when he was older he set about establishing a system of maintenance. Really, I mean, it had fallen into a lot of disrepair. Plus, during the reign of Manasseh and Amon, things had got quite decrepit and there needed to be a lot of cleaning up there and Josiah started organizing repairs on the temple. So they're doing that and they're poking around and they open up a little crack in the wall and they open it further and they find secreted inside one of the walls of the temple they find a Torah and they bring it to Josiah and Josiah opens it up and his eyes land on a verse remember you're Josiah you are it you are Neo you are the one and you get this Torah. It's the first Torah to be found. So everything is according with how amazing your life already is. And this is obviously meant to happen. So the first verse you look at is going to be significant. And the first verse that he sees is Deuteronomy 29, 36. Which is? <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, 36. And God will lead your king into exile to a land that your fathers knew not where they will worship gods of brick and stone and wood. They send this document that they found, this Torah, to the spiritual leader of the age to determine a... Is this really the Torah? And B, is this really going to happen? And the spiritual leader of the age was, of course, a woman. It was the prophetess Chulda. This is at a time even with Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Sophania. She was regarded as the great spiritual luminary of that generation. We're told that she's referred to as Chulda. The word Chulda is a Hebrew word that means a weasel. She's called the weasel, and we're not really sure of her real name. The rabbis tell us that she's called the weasel because of the way that she disrespected the king when she responded to the delegation that was sent to her. Because she said to them, go and tell the man who sent you. Others say that she was called Chulda for a very powerful reason. Uh, that was actually to her credit. She would spend her time teaching children. That's why there was, during the Second Temple period, one of the gates of the temple was called the Gate of Chulda. She was one of the conduits that led from the First to the Second Temple, spiritually speaking. She's an amazing woman. But she said, go and tell Josiah that that is in fact the Torah, and that prophecy is going to happen because the bloodshed and the violence and the corruption that has built up under the preceding kings of Judah must be requited. We can't stop that punishment. But because you are a righteous king, Josiah, and because you have humbled yourself before God, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And Josiah goes, okay, I can deal with that. A bit like what Hezekiah was talking Yeah, not my lifetime. That's okay, not my problem. Someone else's problem. Now, what's very important, even secular historians will come and they will tell you that the Josianic reforms were real and they effectively created the book of Deuteronomy 
as the central constitution of the Jewish people. Some Chazafresing Apikorosim will tell you that the book of Deuteronomy was discovered then because the book of Deuteronomy was uh, written then. That opinion doesn't need to freak us out. That's fine. Historians have one way of looking at it and rabbis have another way of looking at it. But at the end of the day, it was Josiah who was responsible for establishing the the Torah as the central code of what was going to happen. And also encouraged and sponsored all of the what they call the Deuteronomistic histories of Israel, which is basically the books of Judges, the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, all of the narrative of the kings that we've been talking about leading up to that time. It's extremely influential. Now, by the time we get to round about 609, 610, so Josiah is really kind of at the height of his kingship. He is autonomous. He has control over Samaria as well now. Uh, Egypt is definitively independent and in fact Egypt is starting to flex its muscles. Egypt has always, always seen itself as a major power broker. Even today, of course, if we look at the context of the Middle East, Egypt always sees itself as a major power broker and that's how it was then. They say, we've been around for a long time, we've seen empires come and go and if the Assyrians are now on the wane, then it's time for us to flex our muscle a bit and become Egypt yet again. But Josiah is kind of doing the same thing in Judah, not expanding, but wanting to be this neutral spiritual entity that is a messianic state. That's the historical picture of Josiah that we have at the moment. Now, in minus 612... Babylon finally broke free of Assyrian domination. They had a similar culture, similar but different. Similar religion but different. Much more focused on a priesthood rule in Babylonia and a much kind of richer mythology. Even Assyrian domination, the Babylonians had always seen themselves as special. And there were certain grievous things that the Assyrians had done to them and eventually they broke free and they created their own empire. And in 612, they schmeist the Assyrians, the Assyrian army, at the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. At Nineveh. Famous destruction of Nineveh in minus 612. The destruction that was so awful, I mean, the king committed suicide. That was the destruction that Nahum had been talking about. That happens in 612. It wasn't the end of the Assyrian Empire yet, but it was the death blow. The Assyrian Empire, or the Assyrian army and the Assyrian royal family, then reconstituted itself in Haran. Haran is like in northern Syria, near the border with Turkey. The Assyrians re-established themselves here. So the Babylonians come at them. The Babylonians come at them in 609. And Nehor, who for years the Egyptians had been kind of in this power struggle with the Assyrians, but now that the Assyrians are on their knees, Nehor doesn't want the expansion of Babylonia into the area, so he thinks it would be a good idea to shore up the remains of the Assyrian defense. Everybody follow? So Nehor takes his army from Egypt 
and goes to Haran to assist the Assyrians in their defense against the Babylonians. Alright? What's the quickest way? Josiah. I'm Josiah. What do you mean you're going to march through the land of Israel? If this is the messianic period as described in the book of Deuteronomy, then we are the fulfillment of messianic conditions. And one of the messianic conditions is no sword will pass through your land. You can't march your army to fight the Assyrians. I don't need that. You want to go round? Much, 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 much longer trip. That's your business. But you're not going to march through Israel. And he took the entire army of Israel and he met Nehoz's army where famously at Josiah's last stand. You've heard of this place, but you're going to go, oh, that's why it's famous. At Megiddo. (laughs) So, Nehor comes with his army because at Megiddo is the narrow pass you have to go through into the Jezreel Valley to then find yourself going all the way up through Lebanon, right up to northern Syria where he had to get to. So the Judean army is blocking it. Nehor goes, uh, what's your problem, dude? Like, my fight's not with you. Out of my way. I'm on my way to fight the Babylonians at Haran with the Assyrians. Just let me through. And Josiah goes, no, you're not going to have the Egyptian army walk through Israel. You're not going to affect our sovereignty here. There was a bit of a, a battle. There are different accounts. Some say it was a bit fierce. Some say there was hardly a battle at all. Nucho told his archers to concentrate all of their firepower on the king. And within minutes, 300 arrows pierced the body of Josiah and he was dead. And Nucho's army just marched through. Josiah's body was brought back to Jerusalem with great solemnity and precipitated a very, very great moral crisis in Judean society. That this king who had been so enthused and passionately empowered with his own vision of what he wanted Israel to be suddenly had met a death like that. Nehor had said to him, why are you standing in my way? I have been sent by God. So you're only obstructing God's will. He wasn't going to listen to that, but the prophet Jeremiah, according to legend, had told Josiah not to prevent Nehor from passing through. But Josiah was his own man, and it ended tragically. He was then replaced by his second oldest son, not his oldest son, his second oldest son, called Jehoahaz. Now, Jehoahaz was popular because he was much more like his father. He was, in fact, of the same mind as Josiah, to continue the same policies. Ascended to the throne a bit sooner than he thought, but he wanted to be like his dad. And therefore, he had got popular support for that. Um, 
A number of historians blame the death of Josiah for the unravelling that's about to happen. Jehoahaz was on the throne for th- only about three months because Nehor, having n- done, not done terribly well in Haran, because basically it was a bit of a stalemate, the Assyrians didn't really achieve their objectives, but Nehor came back and on his way back through decided, you know what, I'm just not going to pass through here, I'm going to make some decisions over here. So he takes Jehoahaz, the new king, and he deposes him. And he takes him into exile. That is the fulfillment. That is the first fulfillment. Many people don't realize, how was that verse fulfilled? It was first fulfilled in this little known king, who was the son of Josiah, called Jehoahaz, who sat on the throne for three months. He died in exile. It was very sad. He was taken to Rivla, he was tortured. And Nehor, in his stead, placed on the throne a puppet king that would be a vassal to Egypt, Jehoahaz's older brother, called Eliakim, who we know as Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was not like his dad. Jehoiakim was much more like his grandfather and his great-grandfather. He says, but whereas granddad and great-granddad tried to, you know, anger God, they were amateurs. This is the, what the rabbis tell us Jehoiakim said. And one of the first things he did was to have the name of God tattooed on his whatnot. That, yeah, really. That is the kind of thing that, you know, <coughs> angers God and uh, the prophets and so on. But as a symbol of his relationship with the traditional spiritual values and religion of the people of Israel, he re-entered and opened all of the polytheistic syncretism that was around. And Eliakim fancied himself as a bit of a local ruler. He didn't like the fact that for the first three or four years, he had to pay vassalship to Nehor, to Egypt. He realized that was the geopolitical reality, but he didn't like it. Eliakim or Jehoiakim comes down to us as a king that is constantly busting to try and get away. He wants to be like his dad, but he doesn't have the same conditions that his dad had. He doesn't want to be like his dad in leadership direction, but he wants to be like his dad in the type of autonomy that Josiah was enjoying under the Assyrian disintegration. And then, minus 605 is a very, very important date in world history. Because in minus 605, the last gasp of the Assyrian Empire and its military assembled at a place called Karchemish. Some of you will have heard of the Battle of Karchemish. The Battle of Karchemish was fought in 605. And Nehor joined that party. So the Assyrians up here at Karchemish Nehor once again on another expedition to help the Assyrians because they thought now is our time because the ruler of the Babylonians and the Babylonians are expanding but they're not fully in, you know, they're not fully at their ascendancy yet. And their king, Nabopolassar, is ill. 
And so he's gone back to Babylon to recover. So they are kind of morally compromised. So now's the time, if we get the right allies together, and it's amazing because for so many centuries, Syria and Egypt had been at loggerheads, but now they're joining to stop the Babylonians. And because Nabopolassar is ill, so they gather at Karchemish and they all build themselves into a frenzy and they go, we're going to kick some Babylonian butt. And Nabopolassar didn't turn up, but he sent his son the fresh crown prince Nabuchadur who we know as Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar comes and that is a massive turning point in history because he comes to Karchemish and it's just very very few battles in the ancient world are as one-sided as the battle of Karchemish if you look into the battle of Karchemish you'll see it was a total slaughter the Babylonian army came and they utterly geschmeißed the Assyrians and the Egyptians who arrived just in time to witness this turned and ran the entire Egyptian army the Babylonians pursued the retreating Egyptian army overtook them and slaughtered them as well. Nahor barely got back to Egypt. It totally wiped out any power claims of Egypt for hundreds of years. Egypt didn't raise its head. The Assyrian Empire definitively gone. Now Babylonia is in town. Meanwhile, back in Judah, Jehoiakim realizes, oh, okay, Egypt's gone. I guess I'd better pay vassalship to Babylonia. And Babylonia said, that's right. So he pays a lot of tribute to Babylonia for a couple of years. And then Nebuchadnezzar made an attempt to take Egypt. That was around 601, 602. And it wasn't so successful. So Joachim goes, oh, maybe, you know, maybe the Babylonians are not as strong as they say they are. So he decides to declare independence from Babylon and ally himself with Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem. Other than that, he sent a very strong army in full delegation. We're not entirely sure if he was present at that 603. He, if he was, then he came to Jerusalem three times. The first was in 603, where he basically warned Joachim in very strong terms about not rebelling. He re-established Babylonian primacy, and he took a number of important assets with him back to Babylon, amongst whom were members of the royal family and the intellectual elite. Not the big numbers yet, but he took a few. That is the exile. That's the very first exile of the elite. And that includes figures like Daniel and Azari, Mishael and Hananiah. That wave was a small wave. And he went back then and Jehoiakim would say, OK, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. But Jehoiakim couldn't be good. He couldn't stay subservient. That is the time when the prophets of Israel are going, the temple and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. There's nothing we can do about it. The only way that you could possibly even have a chance of averting that disaster is by improving your ways. Tremendous tensions. And the book of Jeremiah is full of the tensions between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim, who was the king. And, and every year, Jehoiakim's calling like a rebellion conference. Some of the nations around, and they'd take a, a week at the, you know, the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, and they'd sit there, and they'd have a conference, and come to the and go, oh, should we rebel? Should we rebel? And then in 597, Jehoiakim does it, and he rebels. And Nebuchadnezzar marches himself with an army on Jerusalem. 
Amazingly, we now have Jehoiakim's palace. We know where exactly where it is. We know the walls. We know where the Babylonian army stood. And they sieged Jerusalem. That was in 597. That's the famous siege, but it's not the destruction. During that siege, Jehoiakim died. And his body was thrown over the wall to the Babylonian army below. Because that's what you did. It wasn't us, it was him. If you've got an army standing at, you know, sieging you because your king has rebelled, then one way you're going to survive that is to kill the king and throw him over. Well, we're not entirely sure if they killed him. We don't know, but we certainly know that by the time he got to the bottom, he was dead. <laughs> we're not sure if he had died before or after they threw him over the wall. And then there was a bit of futzing around for a couple of months. And during that couple of months, they put Jehoiakim's son. It gets confusing, so don't freak out. I'll remember it for us. Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiachin was on the throne for three months as well. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar comes into the city and he conquers Jerusalem. And he takes Jehoiachin into exile. Unlike Jehoiachaz, who'd been exiled westward into Egypt, Jehoiachin is exiled eastward to Babylon with around 3,000 of the administrative and intellectual elite of the Jewish people. Anybody who knew anything or how to do things, a lot of the cream of the priestly class, a lot of the prophets or the intellectuals, a lot of the uh, administrators, bureaucrats, and much of the nobility, the king's family, all shipped off. It is in that exile... That wave of exile where we see people like the prophet Ezekiel. Or, for example, when you open up the book of Esther and you read about Mordechai. Yeah, it says that Mordechai was exiled in the days of Yechonia, who is Jehoiachin. That was the king Jehoiachin who was exiled. Nebuchadnezzar, in place of Jehoiachin, puts his uncle, the last son of Josiah, on the throne who is the last king of Judah, who is Zedekiah, Zedekiah. Zedekiah is a complex fellow. By the way, Jehoiachin's life in Babylon was not terribly pleasant. I mean, he was in jail. He was in prison. And we, we could look at other time at the tremendous pathos that was going on with that exile and the letters and communications that were going back and forth between the prophet Jeremiah and others with Babylon uh, about the conditions of the new exilic community. This was a remarkable community that had to set itself up in Babylon now without really much idea about what they should do. No one had invented shuls or community centers yet. They didn't really know, they didn't even know if God could hear them over there. That's why the prophecies of the prophet Ezekiel in Babylon were so remarkable because it was the first time the prophecy had been received. This whole picture is is on another parallel narrative, which we'll have to look at another time, is also seeing a transformation in the Jewish concept of God. 
because the prophets of Israel, especially these prophets around about the destruction, Habakkuk looking at the problems of suffering and the problems of evil, and Sophania looking at the purpose of exile, and Jeremiah, you read any chapter from the book of Jeremiah, read chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, Jeremiah goes down to the temple, he goes up to the temple, and he gives this amazing speech where he says, you think that because you have the temple and you have the Davidic kingship and you have everything, that you are inviolable, that Jerusalem will never be destroyed, that the temple will always be standing because it's an eternal building built by King Solomon, dedicated to God. And you think, therefore, because you have all of that, that nothing's going to happen to you. Well, I'm here to tell you, in the name of God, if you don't think that I will destroy this place, go and look for Shiloh, where the ark stood for 300 years. Go and look, you won't find it. The Babylonian army is coming. And you know who's at the head of the army? God! Hitivu darkechem o ma'alelechem. Improve your ways and your deeds. But if you do not lead a society that is just and righteous and equitable and nice, you're going to get kicked out and Jerusalem's going to get destroyed. And I don't care that it's the temple and the Holy of Holies and the priesthood and the sacrifices. And the whole concept of God is getting ethicized and universalized before our eyes through the prophets of these generations. That's the amazing thing. As the pressure cooker builds and builds. Zedekiah is a complex figure. And the prophets like Jeremiah are thrown in and out of jail. But Zedekiah is trying to play a chess game with all the different machinations going around him. Can I rebel? Should I rebel? Is Egypt strong enough? What if we make an alliance here, an alliance there? Jeremiah famously wears his yoke around his neck to symbolize the fact that all God wants you to do now is submit to Babylon. But the population weren't with him. Clearly. And indeed, in 588, Zedekiah decides, now's my moment. He senses a moment of weakness in Babylonian supremacy. And he and Egypt and a few other nations decide, we're not going to pay tribute to the Babylonians anymore. And we're going to go it ourselves. We're going to be independent. Let's see if they call our bluff. And Nebuchadnezzar called their bluff. And he came to Jerusalem again. And this time, as the Americans would say, he was pierced. He was annoyed that he had to schlep to Jerusalem. He had to schlep to Israel yet again with a massive army. And this time he came and he sieged Jerusalem. This is in 588-587 because this siege lasted like 30 months. The day that siege began, what day did that siege begin? All of the fast days of the Jewish calendar outside of Yom Kippur are around these momentous events. 508 he arrives, maybe 589, and the siege begins on the 10th of Tevet. The 10th of Tevet. Now it was a horrendous siege. We're going to see, in a couple of weeks' time, with the Romans, at the end of the Second Temple, what their siege was like. I mean, Vespasian's siege was no picnic, but the Babylonian siege was profound, and it had a deep, not only psychologically demoralizing effect on Jerusalem, 
but a profoundly physical one. We're told by eyewitness accounts that parents were eating their children. Once you get to that point, it doesn't get any worse. You don't need to describe anything else. There was no food. The people were dying. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar breaches the walls. And he breaches the walls on the 17th of Tammuz. And then in 586, that's the big number, 586, 17th of Tammuz breaches the wall. And by the 9th of Av, which is three weeks later, uh, Jerusalem was uh, in ruins and the temple was smoking. Ezekiel has a massive vision where he sees the divine presence leaving the temple in stages. I mean, if we talk about Ezekiel, we'll really get sidetracked. But if you read the book of Ezekiel and his descriptions of the visions that God shows him about what's going on in Jerusalem, about the horrendous practices, fascinating actually the different ways in which they were worshipping different types of entities, the corruption that was going on. When the divine chariot leaves the sanctuary, leaves the temple, Ezekiel sees in a spiritual vision and metaphorically that an angel reaches down and grabs the coals, the fiery coals from underneath the divine chariot as it descends up to the Mount of Olives and then just throws these coals on Jerusalem and the whole goes up in flames. It was cataclysmic. We're going to see this in much, much more detail. We have much more detail about the destruction of the second temple, but the destruction of the first temple, which was fundamentally deliberate, would have been absolutely horrendous. And the sheer paralytic shock that it would have sent the nation into, because this was a nation to whom this was not supposed to happen. But as the prophets had consistently told them, you have misunderstood the fundamental nature of this temple. The fundamental nature of your purpose in the world. That is what the prophets are screaming at the kings of Israel and at the population. God doesn't need your sacrifices. He's had enough stake. God requires ethical behavior, righteousness, justice. That's it. And the temple and the Jewish people are a sacred location that brings divine consciousness in the world. In the words of Isaiah, you are to be a light to the nations, but you are not to pursue power for its own sake, and you are not to lead this nation into corruption and degradation. And if you do not deserve to be here, says God, I myself will destroy the temple. And God says, the Babylonians, they're just my shluchim. They're just my agents. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, when he gets to Jerusalem, it's very interesting because through his generals and so on, they go and they find Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who at the time was up to his neck in mud and crap, chained. By the way, Jeremiah, on the eve of that destruction, had gone and bought a field in Anatot, near Jerusalem amazing act of faith where he said <laughs> I mean it would be like God forbid with all the chasvashalams and everything like that if you thought on the eve of a nuclear holocaust in Israel that you went and bought a flat in Tel Aviv that would be what it would be like because I know says Jeremiah that this people will return to this place 
And he told the exiles in Babylon, it will be 70 years and you will come back here. The Babylonians find Jeremiah and they free him. And they say, you're free to do what you want. Because he had prophesied about the Babylonian victory and he'd been telling the Jewish people not to rebel against Babylon. And so he decides that he will go and live in a little commune that the Babylonians allow to exist. A kind of pathetic attempt to reconstruct Jewish life. And the Babylonians allowed a guy called Gedalia to set up a little commune of people that weren't any hassle to the Babylonians. And you can grow a few vegetables there and play guitars and just do what you have to do. And, you know, you'll slowly rebuild the presence of your traditional culture in this little park over there. And uh, Jeremiah goes and joins them. Gedalia's a nice guy. And they come to him and they say, Oh, there's some very, very cross people who want to kill you because you're collaborating with the Babylonians. I'm not collaborating with the Babylonians. They've let me just sit here with a few families and I'm just, no, 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 no. They're going to come and kill you. And Gedalia goes, no, they're not. They're just a bunch of hotheads and they're running around. They're not going to come and kill me. And of course, those people came for dinner and they killed him. That was a horrendous act. And interesting, the more you look into it, the more interesting it is that the sages of Israel made that day a fast day. It was Rosh Hashanah, but you can't fast on Rosh Hashanah. So the day after Rosh Hashanah, on the 3rd of Tishrei, is called the Fast of Gedalia. Till today, people fast the Fast of Gedalia and they don't realize. And, and a lot of people don't realize the parallels between Gedalia and I've always thought it's not entirely accurate so please don't throw stones at me but there is a kind of a parallel between what happened to Gedalia and what happened to Yitzhak Rabin. When we assassinate our own people who just want to move things ahead in a quiet kind of way I know that some people might have issue with me talking about Rabin in that way but Gedalia really was this just chilled out guy that just said, OK, let's just all be friends and let's just try and move on and just put the destruction behind us. But that wasn't enough for some people. And then, of course, Jeremiah was forcibly taken to the one place he didn't want to go to, which was Egypt, and he was forcibly exiled there. We don't know a lot about the day-to-day -day workings of the First Temple. What we do know is by a process of implication and extrapolation from what we definitely know about the second temple. And we assume that there were elements of the first temple that were similar. One of the things that is emphasized about the first temple over the second temple, and remember when they built the second temple, as we'll see next week, God says to those old enough to remember the first temple. You see, those old enough to remember the first temple were crying when they saw the second temple. And it's not clear why they're crying. Are they crying out of joy because they never thought they would see that day? And God says, you can tell your grandchildren that, but I know why you're crying, says God. You're crying because you remember the first temple and this is nothing like the first temple. first temple was amazing. It was amazing because we are told this is the way it comes down to us in Jewish tradition. I'm now moving a little away from official history, but what we're told in the traditions of the Jewish people is that the first temple was a place of extreme revelation. 
When you're in Jerusalem today, there's a certain energy and there's all these bizarre waves that come out from the Temple Mount and the closer you get to it, the more psycho things become. And <laughs> trust me, I know, I've, I've lived there. And uh, it's amazing energy around the place. It was In the times of the first temple, it was divinity absolutely revealed. And there's no question that we lost something. With the end of the temple, what we mourn when we mourn the loss of the first temple is we mourn not only that incredibly intense revealed location of the divine, but we also lose prophecy. We lose the direct revelation of the word of God because really this is signaling now the end of the prophetic age. And ultimately, of course, we lose the monarchy. The monarchy was never reconstituted. Zedekiah was the last king. When the Babylonians found Zedekiah, when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, when they breached the walls on the 17th of Tammuz in that year, Zedekiah and his close members of his family bolted and they escaped Jerusalem and the Babylonians found them. And what do you think they did to Zedekiah? What do you think Nebuchadnezzar did to Zedekiah? What was the punishment in the ancient world for kings who rebelled? They slaughtered all his sons in front of him and then they blinded him. So that it would be the last thing he would see. They don't kill him. They kill all his children. Then they blind him. Then they lead him in chains into exile. Zedekiah's price for his prevarication and his infidelity to not only what the Babylonians wanted of him, but what the prophets of Israel wanted of him was huge. In another age, Zedekiah might have been an okay king, but he was utterly inept and ill-equipped to be in leadership during the last 10 years of that temple period. Deep into that exile, we have in both Babylonian accounts and in biblical accounts that Yehoniah, Yehoiachin, the nephew, who had already been in exile for quite some time, is allowed out of prison and is given a king's ration and is allowed to live as a free person. We understand that would have probably happened because by the time several decades had gone by, and it was, I think in the 37th year of that exile is when that happened, is because by now the Jewish community in Babylon was sufficiently strong that they probably would have applied their own kind of lobbying and pressure. During the whole reign of Zedekiah, I really want to communicate this to you, the, the difficulty with understanding this period, because during the whole reign of Zedekiah, it was unknown which way it would go. There was an entire faction in Judean society that was saying that it's all going to be okay. This is the faction against which Jeremiah's speeches are aimed. It's all going to be okay because Jehoiachin's going to come back from exile. He's going to bring all the vessels of the temple back with him. It's all going to be cool. And Jeremiah is saying, you guys are false prophets. You don't know what you're talking about. Destruction is on the way. Destruction is on the way. And in fact, destruction is on the way. And when we lost the temple, we lost something deeply profound. Judaism now would have to be reformulated. We would have to have a different basis. Yes, we would rebuild the temple, but there had to be a different way in which we would go about managing this concept of power because it is the one thing that the Jewish people consistently struggle with 
as they attempt to contain the divine covenant that they are given to survive history with, and it's an extremely formative part of our history. After the 597 exile, it was really only the Nochschleppers that were left, right? I mean, the, the majority of the population, but much of the administrative class had gone. Maybe between three and 10,000 had been exiled. So the bulk of the population was left, but very few people really were capable of doing anything significant. And, and that's why Zedekiah's rule of 10, 11 years was so decrepit, because he was really struggling with a second-rate administration and bureaucracy, trying to put that together, certainly no military to speak of. Jerusalem was a very, very difficult nut to crack in the ancient world. It was obviously not the walls that we see now. The walls that we see now are more recent. They're 16th century. It had high fortifications. It was in a difficult place. You had to get to Jerusalem. And that would mean that if you came from the west, you had to climb the Judean hills. If you came from the east, you had to go across the Judean desert. It wasn't an easy place to access. And when you got there, there was these massive walls and it was not an easy city to crack. Not just then, even 600 years later, it was no picnic for the Romans either to try and siege Jerusalem. It wasn't even easy for the crusader armies. Jerusalem has always been a difficult city to conquer. In fact, it's very interesting. Do you know how many times Jerusalem has been conquered in its history? People have actually sat down and worked it out. 44 times. And hopefully we have seen the last of them. The last conquering of Jerusalem is in 1967. Uh, when we talk about Jerusalem, we're talking about the old city. But it's been at the centre of empire building. All empires try to minimise its importance. Some of them do. But all of them utterly dependent on conquering Jerusalem as part of their expansion because it sits at the complete juncture of continents and directions and importance. You have to control Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem just so happens to be our capital city. And uh, that then ties in very much with the role of the Jewish people in the world. I don't want to get preachy about it. And our job is to understand the narrative of Jewish history. And I, what my aim is to give us just a framework by which we can then do our own research and understand Jewish history. But a lot of people treat Jewish history as interesting, but it's much more than interesting. And the Jewish people are much more than just a cultural club. We have the opportunity to have our hands on the very pulse of the destiny of humanity. If we can realize that and realize our potential in the world to be what the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah are telling us we can be, which is a light to the nations, and if we really can transform our society and our place, I know that doesn't always seem easy in every generation because we have enemies and we have challenges and we have obstacles and as well as all the plethora of first world problems. But these events are historical circumstances that keep coming back again and again and again. When Jeremiah tells the people being exiled from Jerusalem in the most devastating destruction imaginable, you will come back here and rebuild in 70 years time. They're thinking, loco naboco. <laughs> and if someone had said to the Jews being exiled by the Romans in the first century, in 
1900 years time, nearly two millennia, your descendants will come back here and rebuild the land of Israel as a Jewish state. They would have gone, what the? The words of the prophets and the revelations that are contained around the destruction, as difficult it is for us to read about these appalling mistakes that were made, these are real. And these are our ancestors. And these are us. And when you read these documents, you go, yeah, I can imagine us behaving that way. I can imagine us saying that. I can imagine us doing that. We're making sometimes the same mistakes. We're not just reading comic books here. These are real physical journeys that the Jewish people take. And we can also say, oh, well, it happened to our ancestors two and a half millennia ago. What's it got to do with me? Because we are those same people and we are doing those same things and we're in that same situation. We're still the Jewish people. Our capital is still Jerusalem. And we're still struggling with power. We're still trying to work out the relationship between the diaspora and the center. And how does that all work? And what's that all got to do with God? And what's God's plan for the world? And our plan for the world is to create an ethical society that the nations go, oh, bang, we want to be like them. We're on the way. It's going to get very exciting in the next couple of weeks. The later we get, the more we know. We know a lot about the Second Temple. We know a lot about who destroyed it. And we're going to be looking at that in quite some detail. But I'm very, very glad that you followed me so far for this first couple of things, just to look at the way the First Temple unfolds. Thanks for listening, guys. more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.